Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. Usually on this podcast, we analyze the films in the DCEU scene by scene. We started with Batman v Superman, then proceeded through Suicide Squad, and we've recently completed our 52-scene breakdown of Wonder Woman, written by Alan Heinberg, Zack Snyder, and Jason Fuchs, and directed by Patty Jenkins. In this special episode, we are going to look back one more time at the Wonder Woman origin film and hear from a variety of people about what their favorite part of the movie was. This will include thoughts from our regular podcast contributors, myself, Rebecca Johnson, Sydney, and Alessandro from the Wonder Woman team, and also Nick Begovich, our contributor over from the Justice League team. And we will also feature submissions from other fans from around the world. We'll hear people talk about their favorite scenes, their favorite characterizations, and their favorite production elements. Before we get to that, however, I want to take a few minutes to look back at the overall structure of the movie and comment on something that I really appreciated about it. And that is that one of my favorite things about Wonder Woman is something that's not actually part of the film itself, but rather the context surrounding the film and its release. I was happy that it was well-received by critics and the general audience. Reception, of course, is not an objective measure of a film's quality, but I was just happy about it because going into the summer of 2017, I was fairly fatigued with defending Man of Steel and then really defending Batman v Superman. Don't get me wrong, I'm happy to defend those films, and I think we have lots of evidence and well-supported interpretations to bolster my opinions, but it is a bit tiring to constantly see people assuming the worst about films that you love. Luckily, Wonder Woman broke the pattern and was generally loved. A big part of that, we contend, is that it was fairly straightforward in its flow and its themes. We covered the themes in our analysis, such as, Mankind does not deserve saving, but we should save it anyway. We all have hatred and love, anger and compassion, but love and compassion are the more powerful forces. And when you see an injustice, you should do something. We also explained how the strong point-of-view character in Diana and the connected editing where one scene directs us right into the next, they all made it an easy movie to follow. It was also an easy movie for fans to follow and get on board with because it adhered quite closely to the blockbuster formula. Throughout our analysis, we have referred to the typical blockbuster formula and we've described how Wonder Woman basically followed the formula pretty closely, but it did it well. So we're not complaining. It's just that this is an example of a film that was very palatable to mainstream audiences precisely because it did follow a formula. But it also had a lot of artistic merit in its execution, as we'll hear from all our submissions later in the episode. And of course, a lot of the creative credit goes to Alan Heinberg for the screenplay and to Zack Snyder, Alan Heinberg, and Jason Fuchs for the story. And of course, most of the credit to Patty Jenkins, who oversaw the whole thing and brought it to life. Because our regular analysis on the podcast is broken down into small components going scene by scene through 42 episodes and over 22 hours of coverage here in Wonder Woman, but we thought it would be good to lay this all out in one place to get the overall picture of the structure. So with that being said, here's the JLU podcast breakdown of Wonder Woman's blockbuster movie structure based on Blake Snyder's formula as explained in his book, Save the Cat. And Blake Snyder says explicitly that this is not necessarily the formula for all films, because film is an art form where people can take many liberties and try experimental approaches to telling their stories. But film is also a business, and Snyder contends that this formula has been proven to work for blockbuster films that are meant to have general mass market appeal. Wonder Woman definitely showed that mass market appeal, and it also exemplifies a film that infuses creativity within the confines of the formula and demonstrates good execution. First of all, in our interpretation, although Wonder Woman has some elements of the genre that Blake Snyder calls superhero, we think the film is predominantly a rites of passage film. Diana is going through something that is a universal human experience, namely the departure from a protective home and mother and entry into a big, complex, and dangerous world. She learns some hard truths and has to figure out how to hold on to her ideals and her compassion in the face of violence and hatred out there in the world. Overall, in terms of Snyder's story genres, Wonder Woman is about Diana taking ideas from Themyscira and integrating them, synthesizing them, into what she's learned in Man's World throughout the movie and at the end she arrives as a new person. Next we'll go through the Blake Snyder beat sheet, 
but we must first note that Wonder Woman has some extra components, a prologue and an epilogue, the present day scenes that are set in Paris. So with those being a framing device for the story, we're going to actually look at the main substance of the film as the flashback portion, which gives us roughly 127 minutes of content. Using 127 minutes as the total runtime, Blake Snyder's formula gives specific page numbers for certain things to happen, and we'll compare those formulaic suggestions with the actual film as we go along. Note that one page of script generally corresponds with one minute of screen time. Okay, let's go through the formula. We'll first give Blake Snyder's directives, and then we'll remark on Wonder Woman in particular. Opening image. This is a visual that represents the tone of the story, a snapshot of the main character's problem or motivation before the adventure begins. In Wonder Woman, it's an innocent, young Diana looking down at the Amazon warriors, wishing for a chance at adventure and to save mankind, as those warriors did in the past. The suggestion in the formula is for this opening image to happen on page one. And yes, we see it in the first minute of the film. The setup an exploration of the main character's world as it is now, with some clear room for growth or something missing. So that would be the sheltered life among the Amazons on Themyscira, and the egalitarian and honorable society that they have. It's also the mother-daughter dynamics, where Diana in the setup is still somewhat naive, though good-hearted. She has some room to grow, becoming an adult and having for herself some of the experiences and wisdom that her mother already has. The history lesson with Ares' relationship to mankind is also part of the setup. Suggested, pages 1 through 14. In the film, it's minutes 1 through 13. Theme stated. This is a moment within the setup where a character actually says aloud what your story is about, the message, the truth. Usually it is spoken to the main character, or at least spoken in their presence but the main character doesn't understand the truth yet, and they won't until they have some personal experience and context to support it. In Wonder Woman, we think some of the themes about the growth that Diana will need to undergo are more implicit and not always said aloud in the setup, but there is one moment where a theme is explicitly stated to Diana, and that's from Hippolyta. She says to Diana, I will tell you a story so that you will finally understand that war is nothing to hope for. But of course, Diana doesn't learn from the story. She has to go out into the world and learn for herself about war. In our view, this isn't necessarily the most important theme of the movie, but it's definitely a theme, and it's an area of growth for Diana, who goes from the young girl who can't wait to pick up a sword, and then the eager hero trying to seek out Ares as soon as possible, to a more reserved and wise hero who realizes that people have to make choices for themselves. Theme stated is recommended for page 6. In Wonder Woman, it happens a little bit early at minute 3.5, which would be page 4. The Catalyst. This is the moment where life as it is changes, and it's an event that starts to propel the main plot forward. So of course, this is Steve Trevor's crash, and the arrival of not only a man on Themyscira, but the arrival of the Germans and the troubles of mankind. According to the formula, the catalyst is supposed to occur on page 14. And right on cue, the plane crash starts at 13 minutes 40 seconds, which would be page 14 of the script. Now, the catalyst is usually just a moment, um, but Wonder Woman extends the catalyst by putting in a whole action sequence on the beach before the debate begins. Although I suppose Diana has a bit of a debate about whether to get involved in the battle, which then turns into the broader debate, but speaking of the debate, the debate. This is a section where the main character has to think about the big plunge that they're about to make before they head off on the main plot. Change is scary, and for a moment the main character doubts the journey they must take. Can I face this challenge? During the debate section of the story, the main character could still back out. In Wonder Woman, there's no question that Diana wants to go, but there is debate about whether she actually can and will go. There's debate between Diana and Hippolyta in the throne room scene, and Steve is part of the debate, too, because he warns them about the war. Another key part here is Diana and Steve in the infirmary, which does help Diana make the decision to take the leap. And that leap is represented in Diana scaling the tower and taking the sword and armor. The final bit of debate is Hippolyta and Diana at night, right before she leaves. 
Diana concludes by saying that she must do something, but we can see that this is a very emotional moment for her. This debate section is supposed to take up pages 14 through 29, and in the film it's pretty close, just nudged later a bit because of the extended catalyst scene on the beach, so the debate is actually minutes 18 through 33. Break into Act 2. The main character makes a choice and the journey begins. We leave the original status quo and go into the upside-down world that is Act 2. So the world of Act 1 is Themyscira, and the contrasting world of Act 2 is Man's World. So the break into Act 2, the moment where there's no turning back now, is Diana getting on the sailboat with Steve, and Hippolyta literally says to her that she can't come back. The formula lists this on page 29, and it happens at minute 33. B story. Now the B story is something that is woven throughout the film, but the blockbuster formula says that the start of Act 2 is a specific place where you're supposed to develop the B story. The B story is usually called the love story, and this part of it is usually a discussion between the main character and the love interest. Moreover, the discussion should touch on the theme from Theme Stated. In Wonder Woman, the break into two leads right to the sailboat conversation between Diana and Steve. From earlier, one of the themes is that war is not something to hope for. And here, they do talk about just that. Diana is eager to get to Ares, and she is very confident that she'll destroy him. But Steve is trying to tell her about the extent of the war and its true horrors. Of course, she'll have to see it for herself before she can fully realize the theme. This is supposed to happen around page 35, and we see it in the movie around minute 36. Fun and games. This is when the main character explores the new world and the audience is entertained by the premise they have been promised. The premise for Wonder Woman is pretty clear. A superpowered hero from an island of only women comes to man's world in the era of World War I. So the audience has been promised some culture clash moments and some time period set pieces. The fun and games begin right after the theme discussed on the sailboat. Diana and Steve's banter about marriage and sex is part of the fun and games we were promised. So is her arrival in London, the clothes shopping scene, the alleyway fight, and Diana's marginalization and then confrontation with the British leaders. This section continues through to the meeting of the Oddfellows and also Wonder Woman's initial fights in World War I. And note that fun and games does not literally mean that it's all fun and light-hearted scenes. Fun and games is just the name for this section of the movie. If it's a horror movie, it's going to be scares in that specific setting that was promised by the premise. If it's Jurassic Park, it's going to be dinosaur attacks and escapes. If it's a mystery, this is going to be clues and leads and misdirections. If it's a family comedy, then it might actually be fun and games. And here in Wonder Woman, it's a bit of comedy and a bit of drama, with it all based on the premise of Diana now coming to learn about man's world. Recommendation, pages 35 through 64. Actualization, minutes 37 through 77. Midpoint. Dependent upon the story, this moment is when everything is great or everything is awful. It's a false victory or a false defeat. In the case of Wonder Woman, it's a false or temporary victory, comprising two consecutive high points. Diana saving the town of Veld and her connecting personally with Steve. The formula places this on page 64, but Wonder Woman has it a bit later, at around minute 78. So this is a slight deviation from the formula in terms of timing, because uh, the Wonder Woman creators went a few minutes long with their fun and games, and then they extended the midpoint to be a couple scenes and not just a single moment. The bad guys close in. In the blockbuster formula, this means the bad guys, or the negative consequences, close in figuratively and literally. Doubt, jealousy, fear, foes regroup to defeat the main character's goal. In Wonder Woman, there's not a textbook bad guys close in section, but we do see Ludendorff and Maru's plan going forward. So you could call it a bad guys advance section. The tensions are raised between Diana and Ludendorff at the gala. Steve fails in his attempts with Maru, and then a big downward swing happens when Steve stops Diana and they basically have a big angry separation because it comes out that Steve doesn't believe Diana. The suggestion for this is pages 65 through 87. In the film, it's minutes 86 through 100.
all is lost. The opposite moment from the midpoint. So because the midpoint was a high point, this is going to be a very low point. According to Blake Snyder, it's the moment that the main character realizes they've lost everything they gained, or everything they now have has no meaning. The initial goal now looks even more impossible than before. And here, Blake Snyder suggests that to heighten the drama, you should have something or someone die. Now, a little side note for the all is lost part. In our analysis of scene 48, I talked about Wonder Woman being caught by Ares on the ground, the Oddfellows being pinned down, and Steve's death as the all is lost moment. But that was not exactly the Blake Snyder version of the all is lost moment. That was more like a, it looks like the hero might actually lose moment. But uh, that was actually part of what Blake Snyder would call the finale. And there was that moment in there just to give it some extra drama. But using the definition and the beat sheet from Snyder's Save the Cat, I think it's more accurate to say that the all-is-lost moment is actually the gassing of Veld. That's precisely the opposite of the midpoint. Where we had seen the Veld celebration, we now see death and destruction. Where Diana was happily dancing in the snow, she is now agonized in the gas. The people of Veld who she saved are all now dead. And that gives the explicit whiff of death that Blake Snyder talked about in the All is Lost moment. Also, Diana's relationship with Steve is still in a bad place, as she blames Steve for stopping her from preventing the tragedy. All is Lost is recommended for page 87. It happens here at minute 100. So if you're keeping track, Wonder Woman had a little bit longer fun and games than usual. But ever since then, the midpoint, the bad guys close in, and the All is Lost... They've been consistently just a few minutes behind schedule. So the pacing is following the formula, even though the placement is slightly off here. Dark Knight of the Soul. The hero realizes they have nothing left. They give in to fate or faith. The main character hits bottom, because you must fall completely before you can pick yourself back up and try again. Then, the moment of clarity. They realize the answer is something they learned during the B story and they rise, preparing to synthesize what they knew at the beginning with what they've learned from the theme. For Wonder Woman, this descent into the dark night of the soul is when she angrily rides off and then kills Ludendorff. But of course that doesn't work, and she sees that the war is continuing and that men are to blame, not just Ares. The dark night continues for a little while into Diana's interactions with Ares, too, through the portions where she's tempted up until she makes her decision to reject his offer. The formula says this should be 11 or 12 minutes, starting on page 87, and the film has it for about 10 or 11 minutes, from minute 100 to minute 111. Break into Act 3. This is a proactive decision by the hero to move forward. The protagonist makes a plan to synthesize his or her beginning skills with the newly acquired skills from Act 2, especially the lessons learned from the B story, and use them both to overcome the main outer conflict. So this would be Diana's explicit rejection of Ares' offer. And she doesn't yet, but she will eventually use something she learned from Act 2 in the B story, namely that it's not about deserve, it's about what you believe. The break into Act 3 is slated for page 98. In the film, it happens at about minute 111. The finale. This time around, the main character incorporates the theme, the nugget of truth that now makes sense to them into their fight for the goal because they have experience from the A story and context from the B story. Act 3 is about synthesis. And obviously the finale in Wonder Woman is the fight with Ares. It also involves the Oddfellows trying to stop the gas bombs. So we also have Steve using some lessons that he's learned and making his character decision to do something and sacrifice himself. As the formula says, Diana does learn from Steve and it is crucial for the finale and they bring back that lesson with repeated dialogue from the B story and the theme development. Wonder Woman has learned her lesson, she wins, and the war is over. This is suggested for pages 98 to 127, and it occurs here in minutes 111 to 127. Final image. This is the opposite of the opening image, and it's meant to prove visually that a change has occurred within the main character. So for our final image, instead of a young Diana looking down in eagerness, we have adult Diana looking up in serenity. Instead of being among the Amazons, she is now amidst a crowd in man's world. 
And it is clear that she has fulfilled her dream from childhood. She has had an adventure and saved mankind. And she has also learned the lessons and had her coming-of-age experience that was set up in Act 1. We also see not only changes in Diana, but changes in the world. What started in the opening shot as the beauty of Themyscira, with Amazons happily bustling in the public streets, has now been extended to man's world. The people in Trafalgar Square are celebrating, and color has returned to the world. And Diana did that. She brought peace and joy from Themyscira to man's world. Recommendation for the final image, page 127. In the film, it's minute 127. And then, as mentioned before, there's a quick epilogue after the main story of the film. And this epilogue, too, is an echo of the prologue. At the beginning, it was Paris, with Diana on the ground walking to work in civilian clothes. Now it is Paris, with Wonder Woman soaring above the city in her Wonder Woman costume, showing that, with Steve Trevor returned to her and her lessons re-inspired, she is ready to set out again as a public champion of love and compassion. So that is our beat sheet rundown of Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. As I said before, the film follows the formula quite closely from start to finish, and that is a substantial part of why it was able to be well-received on such a widespread scale by children and adults and people from many different backgrounds. And if some of you are thinking that it's somehow less desirable to have a, quote, formulaic movie than, say, a more avant-garde movie, I want to make clear that following the formula is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's a formula precisely because it has proved successful in movie after movie. It is an effective way to secure buy-in to the characters and the emotions of the movie. And it makes a story palatable to an audience because they know how to process it. Following the formula is independent of inherent quality of the movie. You can have great movies that find creative and emotionally rich ways to follow the formula. Or you can have bad movies that are just uninspired and predictable as they go through the movie formula. They have characters and themes that maybe don't really work well together. Conversely, you can have movies that throw out the formula and do something completely different, and those can turn out really, really great, or they can turn out poorly. In this case, I put Wonder Woman in the category of a movie that happens to follow the formula, and it does so very effectively and with heart. All right, that's enough of an overview from me. Let's hear from the other JLU podcast contributors. What were their favorite parts of the film? Next, you'll hear from Rebecca, Sydney, Nick, and then Alessandro. A few years ago, my brother and I visited the Birmingham Museum of Art in Birmingham, Alabama. And while we were there, we took a free class called Slow Art. Slow Art is the practice of examining a piece of art for about 10 minutes and then discussing what you see. This was new to me because I would go to an art museum and I would often quickly look at a piece and then move on to the next one. But when I took my time, I found that I could feel the weather or hear the sounds of people talking. What I love about being a contributor to a JLU podcast is I get the opportunity to slow down and take in a film one scene at a time. In participating in the Wonder Woman episodes, I've discovered and felt new things about scenes that I might have otherwise passed over because they weren't filled with action or romance. One such scene is when Diana and the Oddfellows meet up at the Trafalgar Square celebration. When needing to analyze the scene with Sam, I slowed my viewing down to take in the crowd of people, to imagine the temperature. It must have been cold because they're wearing coats and gloves. And when Diana and the Oddfellows see the memorial board, the sound was taken from me, forcing me to focus on the emotion of the characters. I'm a very visual person, and I love it when a film puts me in the shoes of someone else. What is Diana thinking and feeling in this moment? What memories might be going through the heads of the Oddfellows? The choice to have this scene be built on visuals, music, and performance allows me the chance to mourn Steve Trevor's death right along with the characters I've literally been in the trenches with for two hours. By this scene in the film, I too needed a chance to say goodbye to Steve Trevor, and the filmmaking choice to rely on emotion gave me the freedom to feel something based on my own life experiences, and not because Patty Jenkins told me what to feel. It's a nice reminder that an artist can create something, but it's up to us to determine what we take from it. 
Since I couldn't possibly choose a single favorite moment from Wonder Woman, I'll instead gush about its gorgeous color palette and how, for me, it truly takes the film to the next level. The most obvious and brilliant example is that Themyscira is shot with bright, natural colors, while man's world is a uniform, ugly gray. But to this miserable world, Diana brings her own light, and the colors that pop the most throughout the entire film are her signature red, blue, and golden yellow. Think of that moment when she steps out onto no man's land, the only splash of color besides a few yellow flames and sparks from bullets hitting her shield. Even in less explosive moments, you can always catch these colors in the background. A red bus driving through London, the golden decor of a building's interior, or an iconic blue dress standing out in a crowded ballroom. Emotional scenes are diffused with warm, golden light that emphasizes the peace and calm of the moment. This contrasts well with the bronze tint of the poison gas that destroys the village of Veld and the blazing orange flames of her final battle against Ares. As their consistency proves, these were all deliberate stylistic choices made by Patty Jenkins and cinematographer Matthew Jensen. They used color to not only set the tone of the film in a way that is beautiful without being too oversaturated, but also to emphasize Diana's heroic and emotional journey in every moment of her debut film. It's truly artistic filmmaking above and beyond what is required for a superhero movie. Hey, this is Nick. So my favorite scene in the movie is definitely No Man's Land. I mean, it's just a great moment. It's a good superhero moment. It's great for the DC Comics movies. I think what really sets it apart from a lot of contemporaneous movies would be uh, just the fact that she becomes a wall. You know, the the fancy stuff, they do that, but it comes a little later. She's fighting them in the village in Veld. But just this moment where she comes up and starts, you know, tanking, allowing the soldiers to flank. You know, I like it. It continues that motif set up by the other movies, uh, the soldiers fighting alongside superheroes. And here, since they're fighting soldiers, I mean, you know, the soldiers win, uh, our soldiers, and uh, handily at that. And it's a good moment. This is great visual, just like the bullets and everything, the shells just pounding her shield, and she's hanging on just so these guys can get around. Another great thing about this, they did No Man's Land, but I like that it's not the you know usually you see no man's land in a movie it's kind of like a like a black desert you know something like that here it's I mean it's clearly a dead forest that's been destroyed by the combat and that's one that's perfect you know the conflict uh, between man and nature uh, due to war I mean it's even it's that scene uh, Ares gives her that vision and you see like a, you know you see this earth with just dead vegetation and black soil well you know, just ashes everywhere. And then you see uh, a nice green earth without man. <laughs> it's got a point. <laughs> but uh, they, they really nail that in this scene. This is uh, like, these are the consequences of this war. And like, if you know anything about World War One, just the most pointless war. It, one of the most brutal conflicts of all time. And just for no reason. Just absolute... Mm. And this movie captures that really well. Part of that is, uh, you know, like Charlie, Charlie's reaction to her going over the wall. Fantastic. This is a great bit of acting. Just those uh, wide eyes. He really nails that. Really sells that moment. I just love that shot of her uh, taking the bullets. Fantastic. Yeah, this whole movie's great. I love watching it. But if I had to pick a scene, No Man's Land. When choosing my favorite part of Wonder Woman... I sort of went back and forth on a few scenes, such as Diana's epic final walk toward Ares, which paralleled the No Man's Land scene, or the connective tissue at the beginning and end of the film that attaches it to Batman v Superman and the overall cinematic universe, with its nods to Bruce Wayne and Wayne Enterprises. But ultimately, I decided that my favorite part of Wonder Woman is her assault on Veld, specifically taking out the soldiers inside the buildings. It is fast-paced, action-packed, showcases her skills, and Gal Gadot looks particularly stunning in these shots. There were moments I thought she even looked a little like Linda Carter as Wonder Woman, such as at 1 hour, 18 minutes, and 13 seconds, right before kneeing the soldier out the window. This scene is essentially her warehouse fight scene, like Batman had in Batman v Superman, and it prominently featured her awesome theme song, which really gets the adrenaline pumping. I'll take exciting, stylized action like this over fun, quippy dialogue any day of the week. 
Alessandro mentioned the great use of the Hans Zimmer Wonder Woman theme during the fight scene in Veld, and that brings me to my favorite thing about the film, which is the music by Rupert Gregson Williams. I think it was great how he incorporated the Zimmer theme from BVS, especially because the film bookends nicely with connections to BVS. And I was also impressed with how Gregson Williams didn't overuse the theme, but he tucked it into just the right scenes. There was the full-fledged theme during some of the action sequences, as Alessandro mentioned, but there was also some modified versions used in other scenes, such as the gala dance with Ludendorff. Here, for your listening pleasure, is a sample of Zimmer's original, and then two different versions from Gregson Williams. I also really appreciate that Gregson Williams didn't just use the cello theme, but he also used my favorite part of Zimmer's original composition, which is the Wonder Woman driving rhythm. As we covered in our BVS analysis, it's set in a 4 plus 3 time signature, which basically just means there's 7 beats instead of 8 per sequence. And the time signature plus the syncopation really make it feel like it's leaning and driving forward, which fits the character of Diana. Gregson Williams recognized the power and personality of this rhythmic motif, and he used it throughout the score, even when Diana was younger, prior to the cello melody, which came with the full arrival of Wonder Woman in costume. For example, here is a hint of the Wonder Woman rhythm during an early training scene with Diana. But Gregson Williams did much more than just recycle Hans Zimmer's great motifs. Gregson Williams also created many of his own elements, and I think those cues worked really well too. Here are my two favorite ones, which are the Diana Steve love theme and the Amazon intervals. They're both beautifully simplistic, yet memorable. They come in and out many times throughout the score, and sometimes they're paired with other themes in elegant ways.
pinnacle of Gregson Williams' work is the No Man's Land scene, I think, which he executes to great effect. Whenever I hear that cue, I'm instantly transported back to all the emotions and the visceral reactions of seeing Wonder Woman step out onto that battlefield, refusing to be held back by the men around her, and instead leading them forward. I won't play it here because I'm already taking up too much time, but I encourage everyone, if you haven't already, to put on some good headphones and just listen to that piece from start to finish. You should feel something, especially when those Amazon intervals arrive at the end here in Man's World. The final thing that I will say about the music is that I really liked what Gregson Williams did for the end credits. The overall visual design for the end credits was really nice, and it fit well with the tone and aesthetic of the movie. And the way that I interpret what Gregson Williams did with his cue, Action Reaction, was to take that 4 plus 3 time signature and do his own thing with it. Now that the film is over, and Diana is no longer driving forward toward her goal of stopping Ares, we don't need the Zimmer syncopation that leans forward. Instead, we can now settle into the 4 plus 3 groove, and Gregson Williams hits the 6th and 7th beats right on the nose, which leads consistently to the next downbeat, instead of us being lurched forward on each downbeat like Hans Zimmer did. To finish this section on the music, I'm going to play Zimmer's main Wonder Woman drum motif, and then Gregson Williams' action-reaction. And you can listen for how they represent two different creative takes on the 4 plus 3 rhythmic pattern. And I love both of them. looking forward to what Gregson Williams is going to do with the music for Aquaman later this year. But let's move now into the listener submissions. We were really happy to hear from several of you about your favorite parts of the movie. We're going to start out with Justin Noth. He sent in an email submission which reads, One moment out of many stood out to me when Diana defies her comfort and protection from the outside world against her mother's wishes and decided to leave with Steve Trevor to find Ares and end the war, World War I. She has a tremendous amount of naivete, but a strong sense of purpose, to which Queen Hippolyta is afraid beyond the fear a mother may have for a child. It seemed that Queen Hippolyta was feeling guilt as well, and Princess Diana was challenging her mother on so many levels, including trying to prevent her from maturing into her own. Who will I be if I stay, was her response. She felt a sense of duty and of an unspoken potential, irrespective of her powers or comfortable surroundings. It is the spark of her heroism, outside of her curiosity, that begins here. Interestingly enough, it was Lara Lorvan, Kal-El's mother, who also had similar doubts of danger, rejection, and had difficulty in letting her child out into a world where he would be far superior and powerful physically, but be subject to societal misunderstandings and even disdain. The mothers of these superpower beings feared human emotion and society the most. So that was from Justin. Next up, we have our good friends from the DC Cinematic Minute podcast. Several of us from the JLU podcast have been featured as guests on their podcast, going minute by minute through Man of Steel and BVS, and in the not-too-distant future, I'll be with them again to talk about Suicide Squad. Here are their thoughts on Wonder Woman. Hey there! 
My name's Nathan. And I'm Mark. And we are from the DC Cinematic Minute podcast. And uh, I think we're here to uh, tell you guys a little bit about our thoughts on this uh, here Wonder Woman movie. Yeah, I think we're here to talk a little about about Wonder Woman and what we loved most about it. I think, Nate, for you, it was more of a creative choice throughout it, the film. Yeah, it was definitely the creative choice that kind of revolved around Diana's innocence throughout the entirety of the movie. Um Maybe two creative choices. It's her innocence through it all, which is great. I guess specifically that one scene, In if I'm having to choose a scene, when she's on the boat from uh, Paradise Island with Steve Trevor, and they're all mm-hmm. talking about the whole relationship, man and woman thing like that. But it's her view on man, on it's like, you know, how Aries is just poison your mind. You're all still good. I got you. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's really strong. And, and it, that carried out throughout th- th- most of the movie, I think. It wasn't until Act 3 where it kind of, she had a, revelation I yeah suppose. i mean yeah i guess that was like the tragedy of it at all is eventually the the naivety mm-hmm. fades away and like you really just uh but you know there's something to appreciate in like her you know where she comes from from themiscare and having that mm-hmm. like innocence as you yeah. say and it's like to really enjoy that i i think you're yeah absolutely 100 mm-hmm. percent um my thing was more of a a scene and actually the complete opposite of the character, which Perfect. is Dr. Isabel Maru, which uh, is a character I completely fell in love with uh, when I saw the film. Um, most distinctly is the scene towards the end of the film with Steve Trevor at the fireplace. Like to me, that was kind of a scene that kind of explained who she was and where she was coming from. Besides the fact that the design of the character is incredible. I, I, I incredibly love the design of that character, but uh, yeah, as a villain, she she really represents the complete opposite of Wonder Woman. You know, in in almost every way, she is imperfect compared to Wonder Woman, which is something cool coming from such a hardcore Wonder Woman fan, uh, much as yourself. It's mm-hmm. cool to actually appreciate, you know, the opposite of the character. Yeah, um, you know how everybody can. Oh, I love Superman, but you know Zod is awesome. It's cool to just see that inverse mm-hmm. where you love the character so much you fall immediately in love with their reverse. Yeah, and it's it's because Wonder Woman, she's such a perfect person, really, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're not perfect. We as humans, and I think that's what the film is trying to tell us, is that there are imperfect people on this planet, and no one can be Wonder Woman. And unfortunately for, like, Dr. Maru, it's like, the German army didn't care about who Isabel Maru was. They cared about the quote-unquote Dr. Poison. It's like, because you're Dr. Poison, now we kind of care about you. And so with that, it's like she gets this whole thing where Steve Trevor comes in and he tries to like manipulate her with, with like his skills as like a spy. And for a moment, she believes it. And um, that, that's kind of like the whole reason I, I really enjoyed it. Really just the fact that um, it kind of so like when they're talking to each other, like the whole love of fire, the entropy of life that is like the decline, everything returns to ash eventually. If Steve Trevor had actually been a person who really cared about her, would have disproven it. But the fact is that in the end, life continues to be kind of tragic. And so she's proven right even there at the end of that scene. And that's what I love most about it is that, you know, at the end, at the very end of it all, it's it's still very tragic for Dr. Maru, but she kind of gets a little laugh at it throughout the end. So really good villain motif t- towards the end. Yeah. I think that's, to me, that's the best scene Yeah, that I really liked about it. But yeah. Sounds good. That seems to be uh, our quick little hot take on yeah. the, the Wonder Woman movie. Yeah, eventually we'll cover this film minute by minute for our podcast. So if you enjoyed anything you heard from us, you can definitely check us out there. And uh, all social media at DCEU Minute. And we'd also like to thank everybody over at the Justice League Universe podcast for allowing us this uh, glorious opportunity to voice our opinions about this fantastic movie. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations on your scene-by-scene coverage of Wonder Woman. Thanks, Mark and Nathan, and you can be sure to follow them at DCEU Minute on Twitter. Now, when Wonder Woman was in theaters, many people immediately responded to the No Man's Land scene. Some even saying that they didn't expect to ever cry during an action scene in a superhero movie, but they did cry for No Man's Land. Patty Jenkins herself has talked about how important this scene was for the character arc of Diana becoming Wonder Woman. So it's not surprising that it wasn't just Nick, but in fact several people wrote about it as their favorite part of the movie. First we have Patrick, who is at 4 Steps Painting on Twitter. He wrote, My favorite scene in Wonder Woman was hard to pick, but I ended up deciding on No Man's Land. 
And the reason is, so many people were trying to tell Diana what she could and could not do, but she refused to listen, took matters into her own hands, and led the assault to free the village. To me, this is the point in her life where she became more than Diana of Themyscira. She became Wonder Woman, starting her down the path of truth and justice. And second, we have John Carr. John wrote, The best scene from not just Wonder Woman, but from the past few years in any movie, is No Man's Land. With the Allies pinned down by heavy machine gun fire, destroying a village, and no way to help the people, Steve wants to move through and leave the fighting to the soldiers. Diana sees the violence, the hurting of innocent people, and wants to immediately help. Steve tries to stop her and tell her that there is nothing they can do and that they can't save everyone. It's not what they're here to do. Diana's response, no, but it is what I'm going to do, is amazing. When she emerges from the trench and begins to take all the fire charging at Germans is iconic. The music, cinematography, acting are all outstanding and deserve some type of award. We agree that the scene deserves recognition, and this special episode is the closest thing we can offer, so thanks Patrick and John for your submissions. Next up, let's hear from some folks who view Diana's characterization overall as their favorite part of the movie. Here's Colin Smith, at Raptor Colin, on Twitter. Finding just one thing I love about Patty Jenkins' film Wonder Woman is impossible. I love pretty much everything about it. I've been waiting for a live-action Wonder Woman film my entire life, and Jenkins made my dream come true with this film. For this, I'll focus on the character of Diana herself. I felt the film captured my favorite interpretation of the character. Some iterations of Wonder Woman depict her as battle-hungry, angry, and unyielding, while others make her the unattainable object of desire. This film highlighted what I appreciate most about the character, true strength, compassion, beneficence, leadership, and love. I got to see my hero on the big screen, and I will always be grateful to Jenkins and the whole cast and crew for that. Another listener, Stuart Little, also liked Diana's characterization. He wrote, I loved the film's commitment to Diana's ideal of being about love and peace. She's a warrior, but in the film she isn't fighting to win a war, but to end it. War is her enemy, not the people who fight in it. Thanks, Stuart. And next up is Viola Kovach. She wrote, Honestly, it was difficult to choose just one favorite part of this movie, as there are so many things I love about it. I decided to go with Diana choosing love, even after learning about humanity's true, flawed nature. What stands out to me is that she does this after the profound disappointment of realizing her idealistic worldview doesn't hold true. I remember watching the first Wonder Woman trailer when it was released, and the line that spoke to me the most was, I used to want to save the world, this beautiful place, but the closer you get, the more you see the great darkness within. It was interesting how she talks about wanting to save the world in the past tense, as if the great darkness made her want to give up. Also, this quote is similar to what Diana says to Bruce at the end of BVS about walking away from mankind, because man made a world where standing together is impossible. These lines resonated with me because I wasn't in a very good place at the time, and I felt upset and hopeless about the direction our society and the world in general was heading. So I could truly relate to what she was saying, and it was comforting to see that even Wonder Woman struggles with how terrible things can be. Watching the movie a year later and seeing her overcome this and decide humanity is worth saving was uplifting and helped me in trying to look at life more positively. Of course, one movie can't change everything, but I'm glad this film, and the DCEU as well, is inherently hopeful. I also love how Diana's initial naive mindset is never shown as her being stupid or ignorant. It really bothers me when idealistic and naive characters are treated as less intelligent or childish and in need to learn a lesson to grow up, to become more cynical. Yes, we see that Diana wasn't right in thinking that mankind is all good, and she experiences a loss, but this doesn't happen to cruelly teach her a lesson about how love, hope, or the belief in humanity's capacity for goodness is weak belief. Instead, love is what truly matters, and compassion is shown to be a superpower. Thanks, Viola. That is very well said. And by the way, her Tumblr is victoriawaterfield.tumblr.com. Our final submission comes from one of the biggest Wonder Woman fans I know. It's Omesh, a.k.a. at PrimeEarthMook on Twitter. Wonder Woman is his absolute favorite film, and he has some of his own very insightful and detail-oriented analysis, which you can find at his YouTube channel, which is under Hunter Price. Here's Omesh. Hi, my name is Omesh Singh, and I love the deep connections in Wonder Woman that we see through the death of Steve Trevor. 
First of all, in some context, in the diving rescue scene, we saw Steve from Diana's perspective arriving in an airplane. He was in a downward trajectory from the top right of frame towards the center of frame. He'd lost control and he was powerless to prevent the inevitable crash. He was a victim of circumstance. The plane impacted the water with an audible splash and broke into two pieces. Steve, trapped in one of those pieces of debris, frantically tried to free himself. The plane, a machine of war, dragged Steve underwater. As he was sinking, Steve looked over his shoulder. He was scared and powerless to change his fate. Jumping forward, during the final battle we see Ares use the metal track plates of a tank to bind Diana and pull her down to the ground. So debris of a machine of war pulls Diana down. As Diana lies on the ground, we again see Steve in a plane from Diana's perspective, but this time ascending diagonally from center frame towards the upper right of frame. Steve is framed as leaving Diana. As the plane rises, Steve looks over his shoulder. He reflects on his life and he makes a choice that his life is worth sacrificing in order to bring the horrifying war to an end. The plane then explodes with a bang. So on an emotional level, the way that Steve's entry mirrors his exit from Diana's life is utterly breathtaking. But there's so much more. Director Patty Jenkins has stated that in the film, Steve serves as the symbol of humanity. Viewing the assembly of these shots through that symbolic lens, we can see how the horrifying weapons of war lead to a decline in our humanity, a downward trajectory, and trap us in cycles of violence. We also see how we can rise and reclaim our humanity, an upward trajectory, by destroying those weapons. In terms of the storytelling, I particularly love how the film is told through Diana's memory, and in this particular scene, director Paddy Jenkins leverages this perspective through the use of emotional time. Before the plane explodes, the shot holds on Steve in the same way that Diana is trying to hold onto the memory of Steve. The directing choice viscerally reinforces the subsequent line that we see in the flashback scene, where we get to hear Steve's last words. I wish we had more time. I love you. By allowing the shot to linger, Patty Jenkins gives Diana and Steve what we as the audience feel that they deserve. More time. I wish I had more than three minutes JLU podcast because there's so much more to this scene than what I've just touched on. I'll just conclude by saying that this scene is the confluence of dialogue, themes, symbolism, motifs, Steve's character arc and Diana's character motivation. To me, this scene is the epitome of the cinematic experience. So that wraps up our special retrospective episode looking back on Wonder Woman. Thanks again to everyone who submitted their thoughts and thanks to everyone who has been listening to our analysis. It means a lot to us that you have joined us for this journey into the details and the nuances of these films. In the future, we'll be continuing our analysis of Justice League and looking forward to the next installment to the Justice League universe in the form of James Wan's Aquaman. You can also find bonus content and giveaways from us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash JLU podcast. And keep believing in love.